The reading tonight from the New Testament comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 23 through 29, and can be found on page 2 of your bulletin. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, tonight we uh, begin a new series called Experiencing the Sacraments. And if you have been tracking along with us over the past 10 months or so, we have been uh, doing a deep dive into what is known as uh, the means of grace. And uh, we looked at the word. We also looked at prayer. Thank you, Glenn. And uh, now we're going to look at the sacraments. And so in the next three weeks, we will look at baptism and communion and what these things mean for us as followers of Christ. Now, you've seen baptism uh, every now and then, I'm sure, and you came to the front and received the elements, and so you have some idea of what these sacraments are, but we want to do a deeper dive into what they are so that as we understand better, that we can participate in them in faith and receive all that is promised to us in the word. So I think it, it is good for us to begin with the question, what are the sacraments? Well, the sacraments, to put it simply, are divine ordinances instituted by Christ. That's fancy talk for Jesus commands us to do them. And unlike other means of grace, the word and prayer, sacraments are actually uh, tied to visible and material things like water for baptism, and bread and the cup for communion. And these are in many ways object lessons. God gives us these signs so that as we, offer, as we participate in the sacraments and as we behold these signs, we are reminded of the deeper spiritual truth that lie behind it. So we're going to talk more about that uh, here in, in a little bit. But one thing I do want to say before we pray and dive into the text is that as important as the sacraments are, they're not effectual. They are not what they signify. Meaning, without faith, baptism means nothing. Without faith, communion means nothing. You need to come and engage God in these means of grace, these sacraments, with faith. And when you do, you unlock all the blessings that are promised in the word. But please, do not confuse the two. Because, as some have done in the history of church, they have elevated the sacraments as the thing signified and got in a lot of trouble. And so we don't want to make that same mistake. Okay? Well, let's pray and uh, let's dive into the word, shall we? God, we ask now that you will bless us as we look into your word. Be with me. That you would fill my heart uh, 
with worship as I preach and bring the word. And I pray that you would be with all of us as we hear your word. Give us faith so that we can receive it, not just intellectually, but receive it in our hearts. Believe and be transformed and receive the grace that's promised to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The wedding season is upon us. At least that's what my Facebook feeds tell me. And, uh, and it's a good thing, right? I don't know about you, but I love weddings. I, everyone there is beautiful. Uh, they're happy to be with you. The food is great sometimes. And the uh, homily is short, which is always nice. My favorite part of a wedding is the ring exchange because I really think that that is the highlight of the wedding ceremony because the ring really is a summary of everything that is good and right about that covenantal relationship. In so many ways, the ring communicates love, sacrifice, commitment, till death do us apart. In fact, the ring in its design communicate a lot of that. The circular design of a ring is set to represent the length of the relationship till death do us apart. The precious metal that the ring is made of symbolizes the value of that relationship. And even the portability of the ring, the fact that I can wear it wherever I go, proves that physical separation cannot undo the oneness that I share with my spouse. Symbols such as wedding rings and many other symbols are powerful, and God knows the power of symbols. And so he uses symbols to communicate truth to us. And that's what we have in the sacraments, the baptism and communion. These are symbols that God institutes in order to communicate his heart, his love, his commitment to us. You see, in Christian faith, we believe that God is a person and not just a force out there, some being that exists beyond time and space, but he is a personal being. And we see that in Christ as he lived among us, walked in our shoes, faced temptation, endured suffering. He is familiar with who we are and the life that we are a part of. And so it makes sense then that he would use symbols to communicate to us. And like I said, these symbols, they serve beyond just their intended meaning. They point us to something greater, something beyond the spiritual truth that we find in the word of God. And so we want to look at two things about baptism tonight. First, let's look at it as a sign, baptism as a sign. To better understand the sacrament of baptism, we need to place the text that was read to us in its larger context. The book of Galatians is often referred to as a condensed book of Romans because of its themes on justification and sanctification by faith alone. Paul here emphasizes these tenets, these theological tenets, because the Judaizers, a group of Jewish Christians, taught that salvation is faith in Christ plus Mosaic law. See, it wasn't enough that you trusted in Jesus and his finished work. You needed to complete that by adding on obedience to the law. 
But are the Judaizers right? Here is where Paul is helpful. According to Paul, the Judaizers got two things wrong about the law. First, they failed to understand the purpose of the law, the purpose of the law. The law functioned as a custodian, a, a tutor to help restrain and guide Israel as they were coming into being, if you will, when they were first instituted as God's people. And it was never intended to save them from sin and judgment. Read verse 10 with me. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. When the law gets elevated to the means of salvation, it becomes a crushing blow because the law curses everyone who fails to obey even one command. And none of us here is graded on a curve. The second thing that the Judaizers got wrong is the temporary nature of the law. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Again, Paul says in verse 23, until the coming of faith would be revealed, and finally in verse 25, now that faith has come. You see, Paul correctly understands that law was not in place forever, that it served an important function for a time. And now that Christ has come, and you and I, have been adopted as sons and daughters of God by faith, we no longer need a guardian to remind us of our failures and therefore our need for a savior. The law still is good. It helps us to live out our faith in ways that God desires of us. But the law can no longer impose its demands on us because Christ has fulfilled them perfectly. And you and I, we don't have to fear its judgment and condemnation because Christ paid for it all on the cross when he said, it is finished. You see, you and I, we live in a different era. After the resurrection, and it is the era of grace where the law still functions, but it is not a taskmaster. It is a tool that we utilize to express our faith our love, not only for God, but for one another in the community and even those outside of this community. And Paul, because he understands the threat and the danger that these Christians are under, he gets really passionate. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, you foolish Galatians. I wish we had a video recording of Paul here because I think he's really fired up. Right? He's not your typical PCA guy, you know, with this monotonous voice. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? No, I think he is very passionate about his flock, the people whom he loves and cares for. My translation is, what are you thinking? You know that one meme with LeBron James where he's totally befuddled? Because of J.R. Smith's bonehead play that cost him the game in the NBA Finals. It's like, what are you doing? Go this way, not this way. I, I, I picture Paul as he is writing the, uh, this letter to the Galatians. 
being so confused, frustrated, concerned because of the danger that the flock is in. And here, Paul reminds them of the gospel. And it would do well for us to slow down and reflect upon these truths. So often we read through these verses without much reflection. But if we could wrap our minds around what Paul says here in just chapter 3, I, I think our lives would never be the same again. It cannot be. Because it speaks of who we once were to who we are now in Christ and all the amazing things that are ours in Christ because of our faith in him. Do you know that this, as we're going to unpack this here in chapter 3, but this is true of you. And again, I'm getting ahead of myself, but God gave you the sacrament so that you can look back on it and remember these truths. To replay them over and over and over again until your heart is warmed by the gospel. So that the law is no longer a burden, but it becomes a joy. Paul says to the Galatians, look, you receive the spirit of God by faith, not by works of the law in verse 2. You were made righteous by faith, not by works of the law, verse 6. Just as Abraham was made righteous by faith and not by works. You were justified before God by faith, not by works of the law, verse 11, meaning you have been acquitted of all guilt and forgiven of all sin, period. You received an inheritance by faith, not by works of the law, verse 14, and the inheritance here is our sonship, that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God, and as such, we have all the rights and privileges in the household of God, and therefore, all of God's promises are yes and amen. We don't ever have to question God's goodness or his commitment to us when we come to him in prayer. Never based on our merit. Never based on our walk with the Lord. It's not conditioned on what we do or don't do, but it's conditioned upon the perfect work of Christ. And so we can come boldly knowing that he will say yes that he will receive us, that he will embrace us, that he will hear us. And that's why Paul can say that all the blessings are ours in Christ Jesus. And Jesus speaks of the coming family reunion. Now, for some of you, you're like, ooh, not sure about that. But, but this is a different kind of family reunion, the one you want to be at, the one that you look forward to. The date has been circled on the calendar for weeks and months because you can't wait until you go to be with your loved ones. And that family feast is coming. That reunion is promised to us when Jesus returns. And Paul says, why would you give up all of this and more to be imprisoned and to be cursed? So often, you and I, we do this functionally, don't we? It's hard to really live in the gospel because the law is attractive, especially for those of us here in Washington, D.C., with the can-do kind of mindset. We like the law because we can check off boxes, because they make us feel better about ourselves and perhaps even our standing before God. 
And the gospel says, no, you don't need to do anything to be accepted. Christ has done all of that. So don't go back to the law where you're going to be imprisoned. Don't, go, don't play these games where you're trying to figure out where you stand before God when you are his son, his daughter, known and loved unconditionally because of Christ. So how is baptism related to all of this? Well, that's here in verse 27. Paul says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In other words, Paul says baptism is a sign of everything he just outlined in this chapter. Baptism is a visible gospel, a dramatized salvation where a believer publicly identifies with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And that individual who receives a sign of God's covenant is declaring to the world that I am with Christ, that I belong to him, and that he, belong to, he belongs to me. And therefore, everything that Paul just talked about, receiving the Spirit, being made righteous, justified, with the promise that he will one day return to take me and claim me as his beloved is mine. And nothing can take that away from me. And God wants us to remember this. Just like those of us who are married, we catch a glimpse of the ring every now and then. Oh, that's right. I belong to so-and-so. I am not my own. I will do the dishes tonight. Right? God gives us a sign so that we will remember that we are not our own. We've been claimed at a great cost to our king. He did not buy us, as Peter says, with silver and gold. No, he bought us with his blood. And he gladly speaks your name and claims you even now as his dear beloved. And it would do us well to remember our baptism. I know every time Glenn holds a child, we're all thinking, is he going to drop this kid? Is today the day? No, I, I don't know about you, but it reminds me of my own baptism. And it's sort of like that when we attend weddings too, right? We, those of us who are married, we think about our own wedding day. And those of us who are Longing to be married, we think about our own wedding, what that might look like. And so it is with baptism. Every time we see a child or someone being baptized, it should remind us of our baptism. And it should enliven faith in us. It should take us deeper into the heart of God, to the very bosom of God. And it should strengthen and renew us. It was said that when Martin Luther, the great reformer, was confused about everything, his own salvation, the work of reformation, even everything that he knows Christ did on his behalf, he used to write on his table two words, baptizatus sum, two Latin words for I have been baptized. And it is said that that would assure him place him in a place of gratitude, faith, and joy 
The question still remains, though, is the law relevant today? What do we do with this thing that is no longer part of our narrative, or is it? Of course, the law is relevant today. It is good for us because Jesus came to fulfill the law, not abolish it. And as Christians, you and I are called to live out the law joyfully, not out of guilt, not out of shame, not out of fear, but out of the joy of our salvation, knowing that our obedience to the law is an expression of our love to God and to his body. And that's what Paul talks about here in verse 27. Even though baptism is a one-time event, there is an ongoing reality to baptism. He says, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. This is not the first time he uses this phrase. He uses it elsewhere in his epistles. And this idea of putting on Christ refers to what the theologians call sanctification, which is becoming like Christ in our moral character. And sanctification really is not separated from justification that happens at baptism, right? It is the fruit of justification. It is the fruit of our baptism and indeed evidence that our faith is sincere. And God calls us to live out these commands, not so that we can be saved as the Judaizers taught, but that we can express our love to God and enjoy his blessings as we obey. Let me just say, as we close up this first point, for those of you who have made a decision to follow Christ, you've been a part of this Christian community, maybe here or elsewhere, and you have not been baptized, I want to encourage you to think about baptism, what it means. It is very significant. It's not something we do to check off the box, but it is part of our faith journey. In fact, it was said at the first, uh, uh, first church, the early church, that they did not know faith apart from baptism. Not that baptism saved, they knew that baptism did not save, but they knew that faith apart from baptism was not real. In other words, making this public declaration should be a part of your spiritual journey, and I want to encourage you to think through that, and if you have questions, please come talk to pastors Andrew, Glenn, myself, and we will love to engage you on that. Okay, lastly, let's talk about unity in baptism unity in baptism. Verse 28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is a Jewish blessing that was prayed daily, and it went something like this. Blessed be God that he did not make me a Gentile, Blessed be God that he did not make me ignorant, a slave. Blessed be God that he did not make me a woman. Now, to be fair, the Jews weren't the only ones who prayed such prayers of distinction. But this serves sort of as a background to the world that the Judaizers were coming out of. And understandably so, they were frustrated with Paul because Rather than holding the line of nationalism, socialism, and gender, 
he was not only blurring those things, but he was abolishing them, saying that in Christ, there is neither slave nor free, right? Jew nor Greek, male and female, because everyone, if you're in Christ, you are one. And the sign itself bears witness to this. In the Old Testament, the right of entrance into God's people was circumcision, and that was reserved for males only. In the New Testament, circumcision is replaced by baptism and is available to all who are now in Christ. Here's the last thing that I want to say before we close, sort of piggybacking off of what Paul just got done saying in verse 28. To belong to Christ means that we belong to the body of Christ, one another here in this community. And that's why when we baptize infants, all the members of the church are encouraged to stand and make a vow saying, we will assist in raising this child, assist a parent in raising this child in the ways of the Lord. But part of the world's narrative has crept into the church. You and I, we find ourselves in a city and really in a world where institutions have given away to tribes. And according to this new identity, tribalism, if you don't agree completely with me politically, culturally, and otherwise, then you're not just wrong, you are evil, and therefore I can cancel you. We must not, as a church, buy into that kind of thinking. We, as a body of Christ, must show the world a better way, a way of peace, a way of love, way of humility, way of mercy. As Bonhoeffer once said, the person who loves their dream of community, meaning, man, I wish people would vote like me, think like me, wear masks like me, or get vaccinated like me, or not, will destroy the community, he says. But the person who loves those around them will create community it would do well for us to remember that to be a part of the community assumes we must compromise. You cannot be in a community and demand that everyone in that community comply to your desires and wishes. That is not how community works. That's not how friendships work. That's not how a family functions. You know how often I have to negotiate to get Korean food? These guys, they crucify me for saying, let's go to Annandale. I mean, Annandale. I mean, is there anything better than Korean barbecue? And yet, I got to negotiate. I got to bribe them, pay them $5, $10. I would do dishes for a week. And even then, it's like, hmm, we're not sure. This is what it means to be a family, to be in a community. We know this, yet so often we forget that we're called to put the needs of others before our own. That we're called to die to ourselves. 
And if we can begin to live into that reality where those of us who are politically and otherwise different can come together and love each other as Christ has loved us, how radical a witness we can be in this city and in this world. I don't know about you, but I long for that to be true of this community. Because if that can't be true of us, there is no hope in this world. There really is no hope in this world. We must come together. And we must be the community. We must put the needs of the body before our very own. Let me conclude uh, by reading an excerpt from an article, Evangelicals in the Russian-Ukrainian Conflict. An insider reported on a three-way split within the Baptist circle. The unpolitical, people who could care less about what's going on there. Pro-Western, as the author calls them, colonialists. And the nationalists, the pro-government groups. A leading Baptist theologian in Moscow asks whether our faith is now up to the difficult task at hand. War was completely beyond our list of possible options, he states. For some believers, it's as if God is deaf. He does not hear our prayers. We are at a loss on how to pray, on what to preach. We Russians are suddenly regarded as outlaws by the West, and we do not know how to react. We can find logical reasons to justify the current war, but how can we square that with Jesus' commands? The alienation between Russian and Ukrainian evangelicals appears profound and lasting. In social networks, Christians in Ukraine and Russia are expressing themselves in ways far beyond the constraints of the Christian faith. That kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? The general secretary of the Russian Evangelical Alliance concludes that we need nothing less than another Moses a new leader capable of showing his people the way towards liberation. We must remain convinced in the power of the Christian message. Otherwise, we are lost. Well, thankfully, we have one greater than Moses who has come to redeem us. And he has shown us a better way. He has given us a better baptism. He's not only cleansed us from our sin to take us from unclean to clean but he has taken unholy people and made us holy and he now calls us to model him in his sacrificial love in this community so that we can face each other as brothers and sisters here in the body of Christ first and we can despite all of our differences as significant as they may be say with all of our hearts I love you, my brother, my sister in Christ, because Christ died for you, and the Spirit of God lives in you. You have been made righteous perfectly. You are now justified, and dang it, we're going to be together in heaven for all eternity, so might as well learn to get along now. Let's be that community that reflects the baptismal vows that were spoken over us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the sign that you give to us.
thank you that it is in so many ways a powerful and needed reminder of who we are and whose we are. We ask that you would grant us mercy when we, like the Galatians, want to go astray and find our identity and value and security in things other than Christ. Will you remind us of the powerful work that you began in us and you will one day conclude. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.